This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections and recollections to discover what inspires them. I'm Lucy Scholes, and my guest today is Justine Cowan. Justine is an attorney and environmentalist who spent more than two decades exposing corporate corruption and holding polluters accountable. She's a graduate of UC Berkeley and Duke University School of Law, and she lives in Atlanta. Virago have just published her first book, The Secret Life of Dorothy Soames, which tells the story of her mother's childhood spent in the Foundling Hospital. It's a fascinating and ultimately very moving story that's part history of London's Foundling Hospital, the development of child psychology, part Justine's own story and part that of Dorothy Soames, the name which her mother was given at the hospital during the years she spent living there. Welcome to our shelves, Justine. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Glad to be here. Well, I want to begin before we get on to our main questions by chatting briefly about your book, as it's just such a fascinating story. And I think um, to begin with, for any of our listeners who aren't familiar, could you briefly um, sort of begin by explaining what a foundling was and um, how the hospital, the foundling hospital, differed from something like an orphanage or even reaching further back into history, a workhouse, say? Um, certainly. And to understand the history of the foundling hospital, I think it's important to go back to the mid 1700s. Um, where illegitimate children were literally left in the street to die or to grow up just as beggars and thieves. And um, a man named Thomas Corm would spend his time walking down London streets and would see these abandoned children. And he's the one who spent 17 years um, working to get the Foundling Hospital, um, which is called the Hospital for the Maintenance and Education of Exposed and Deserted Young Children, is its... Um, full name, um, um, to obtain a royal charter to open the institution um, in the mid-1700s. And it took him 17 years to have the institution opened because of the shame of illegitimacy and the fact that illegitimate children were, in some ways, not even really considered people. Um, They had such a low status in society. And so a foundling, um, the, the term actually is not entirely accurate but it's used um, to describe um, those who were left at the Foundling Hospital um, and were given up because of their illegitimate birth. I think one of the things I found most, I mean, there's so many intriguing things in the book, so many fascinating bits of history that I didn't know about, um, but something that I hadn't been aware of before, I think, in relation to the Foundling Hospital was that how the women who gave up their children 
to the hospital themselves sort of were able to then get rid of some of the shame of being an you know being the mother of an illegitimate child and they could get on with their lives and sort of you know make something of themselves potentially but whereas the children who were left in the hospital they were treated so appallingly there weren't they that in fact it was you know obviously nothing you know not their fault that they were in this position in the first place but they were the ones who were then sort of living out these lives and being punished for being illegitimate and even right up into the 20th century the first half of the 20th century when your mother was a was a was when it was during her time there um these sort of very barbaric victorian like way of treating children was still going on i mean that must have come as such a surprise to you when you started doing your research it definitely did and it's a surprise when other people learn it that um it's not surprising perhaps that you would see these draconian um brutal methods of raising children in the 1700s yeah um, but I have had people actually say, well, how old was your mother and how old are you? Because <laughs> they're trying to do this math to put all of this to happen, you know, to have this whole story happen in the 1800s. But it didn't. It happened um, um, in the 30s and 40s. Yeah, I think that was what I was really taken aback by that. That I mean, I had been aware of the Foundling Hospital before. I'd, I'd lived around the corner from um, the original site in Bloomsbury for a while. I know about the museum there today. But I think I had just assumed it was this Victorian institution. It obviously had been founded before then, but, you know, Victorian sort of heyday. Um, I had no idea that it was still going on until the 1950s was when it finally closed, wasn't it? Yes. Um, and in fact... Um, the 40s during World War II was considered one of the um, more horrible time periods for the Fowling Hospital. Late in the um, 40s, there were actually some changes that were put in place. And so some of the last foundlings had a little bit better of an experience. But during the war, it was particularly brutal. Yeah, I don't want to go into too many details if um, listeners haven't read your wonderful book yet. But some of the sort of more barbaric practices that your mother was um exposed to during that time were, were really shocking and, and not what I was expecting at all. Yes, they were very much so. I mean, um, secondly, I think before we get on to the questions, I, I I want to ask a little bit about, you know, obviously, um, it's quite a big kind of topic to go into here. But this book was a long time coming in that you took sort of years of your life to summon up um, I think sort of a mixture of interest and courage to sort of follow your mother's story and really find out what happened in her past, because you and her had quite a troubled relationship, which you're very honest about in the book, which I find um, particularly admirable. So, I mean, very impressive. But I wonder if you could expand on this a little bit and talk about specifically what it was like to um, sort of hunt down and research your mother's story with a, a sort of end that also illuminated your own upbringing and your own sort of relationship between her and you and how you sort of found yourself in the world as well. So what was it like to kind of go about this research and, and what did you sort of, I don't know, I suppose, what was the experience like, yeah, sort of for learning these things about yourself? Um, certainly. Um, well, one thing is I'm a public interest attorney and I'm very accustomed to research. And when I first started, I, uh, I approached the task as I would any case. And I think that allowed me to keep the emotional distance that I needed to be able to delve into it. I got books, I flew over to London, I dug into files, and there was a certain level of comfort um, as I went along that path. 
at some point it slowly transitioned into a very emotional journey that I had not expected. And I think there was a lot of fear because I was well aware that I could end up having some regrets um, about what had happened between my mother and I. And there were a lot of tears shed. Um, my husband would come home and and I would, you know, tell him, well, I was crying at my desk again today. Um, so it was definitely very challenging, but absolutely rewarding and enabled me to see one of the most important relationships in my life in a completely different way. What I think comes across in the book particularly is that how there is a degree of catharsis involved in that you come out of this understanding why your mother was the way with you because she had this very specific upbringing that sort of left her damaged and then she inflicted a sort of level of damage on you after that. Um, And I suppose I'm curious to find out about was there... I think because of what you were saying about your sort of your background as an attorney and the way you approach your research, you seem to have been very good, I think, in the book at not letting the sort of more intimate story or the your own personal feelings about something get in the way of finding the the, the research you needed to find and to be able to kind of weigh up and look at the situation um, in a very objective manner, which I think is, is is quite rare in these sorts of books that are incredibly, I mean, it's so close to home here, obviously, you're writing about your mother's story. Um, and I just wonder, do you think it was your training as a, as a as your kind of background in law that helped with that? Well, my initial response is that I was raised by a British mother who was, <laughs> who was also raised in a British institution where um, emotions were not Um, at the forefront of their upbringing. So I think that definitely helped. And I think my training as an attorney, um, it's interesting because when I submitted the uh, manuscript for publication, I had to have a lot of urging of my editor to bring out more of the emotional side of things. Oh, Um, okay. And um, perhaps I was also engaged in an exercise of trying to weigh what happened between my mother and I in an objective way for my own personal benefit. I find that so fascinating, the idea that this sort of, this very terrible upbringing one way um, then had this knock-on effect that it meant that you were the perfectly positioned person to be able to then uncover the story about this terrible upbringing because you had that sort of remove and you've been taught in a particular way to maybe, um, yes, put your feelings slightly on the back burner for the process. I think this brings us to um, the uh, the answer you've given to our first question today. We ask you about books that are currently on your bedside table. And one of the books you're talking about, um, Memorial Drive, A Daughter's Memoir, is another story written by a, by a woman, a writer about her mother. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that and, and perhaps how it relates to your own work as well? Um, certainly. Um, I, I was drawn to it for a number of reasons. One is that um, it's, well, it's a, it's a book about a woman's experience of going back in time and revisiting a very tragic circumstance in her life was the death of her mother, actually the murder of her mother on Memorial Drive. And I was, of course, initially um, attracted to it because it's done very well, it won a Pulitzer Prize. 
And it took place just a few miles from my house here in Atlanta on Memorial Drive. And I was also aware that one of my dearest mentors was um, an important part of the story. Um, and while reading it, it was fascinating that while the author's experience was so different than mine and what she was exploring was different than mine. She loved her mother very much. Um, we had a lot of similarities um, in terms of this deep desire to go back and understand a trauma and how it impacted our lives. It's a brilliant book. I read it last year. And I think actually, in a way, I while I was reading your book, I did keep thinking back to that and, and, and recognizing some of the connections between them, even though the stories, like you say, are particularly different. Um, and could you tell us about the second book that you've chosen that's on your uh, bedside table? I think it also has some connection with the with Memorial Drive, doesn't it? Well, so the second book is also um, set here in Georgia, and it's called Praying for Sheetrock. Um, and it might be a book that is less known um, outside of the American South, um, but here it's quite well known for telling a, the colorful and interesting story of, um, of a man called Sheriff Popple in um, a small town in rural Georgia. Yeah, no, I think you're right, because I hadn't heard of this uh, particular title before. I think it was a finalist for the 1991 National Book Award that I came across when I was doing some research. Um, but it sounds like something that um, I'd be very interested in reading. Do you often tend to read more nonfiction? You've given me two nonfiction titles. Is that just a coincidence? It's not a coincidence. But I will say that prior to writing The Secret Life of Dorothy Soames, I read primarily fiction. From time to time, I would pick up a book like Devil in the White City, um, where there was a nonfiction book that really read like fiction. And in fact, when I was uh, writing The Secret Life of Dorothy Soames, that was really my goal, was to create a nonfiction book that had that feel of fiction. Um, but since writing my first book, it, my, my reading habits have really changed. Um, and so now everything is about finding out um, little nuggets of information and, and experiences that I can use and transform into um, my own writing. That's very interesting. So the books that you're reading at the moment, is, are the, these two books, are they feeding into a fiction, a not sorry, a nonfiction project that you're working on right now? Yes. Aha. Um, I'm working on um, the the title of book number two is still book number two. Um, <laughs> and, but what it's going to do is focus on my experiences litigating as a female in rural Georgia, which is why I'm reading some of these books about um, Georgia. Um, but what I'd like to do is answer a question that I have and a struggle that I've had in my life. When I wrote The Secret Life of Dorothy Soames, I was attempting to resolve the issue of how the relationship between a mother and daughter is viewed by society. And I had always been a little bit out of step with society, at least so I thought, in that I didn't love my mother. And I think addressing something like that resonated with a lot of readers. In my next book, the issue is being a strong woman and litigator in a culture that doesn't always appreciate those qualities and values. And I'm hoping that 
my journey will resonate with other women who have had to address societal norms that don't allow them to be who they want to be. I'm supposed to be tough as nails and literally fight coal plants and big waste management companies and the government, but I'm supposed to do all of that with a smile on my face. <laughs> and that can be a somewhat impossible task. Yeah, I have no doubt. Well, that sort of brings um, brings us on to the answer to the next question, because we've asked you to uh, talk about a recent article, podcast or film or, or something you've been reading um, that has made you think. And you're talking specifically about um, some essays which have made you look back on some of the things that you wish you'd been told when you were a young lawyer. Am I right? Certainly. It's Fifty Shades of Feminism. And there are a series of just short essays, two or three pages each, um, which is a really nice format because you can have it sit, sitting on your coffee table and pick it up and just read a couple of essays at a time. And the very first essay that I picked up had to do with women in the law. And within minutes, I was thrilled that I had picked up this book because there were words on the page that resonated with me so deeply. And I'm going to read one of them. And uh, the, um, the author said that the legal profession contains a lot of boring and profoundly wearying sexism. And just reading that gave me a certain level of comfort because I, it describes so perfectly my experience being a female litigator in the American South because it's really those daily experiences that just wear you down. And we can all come up with stories of blatant sexism and in the legal profession, there's many where someone walks into the courtroom and no one actually knows that she's the lawyer um, and various things like that. And we assumes that she's the paralegal and that type of thing. But it's really those day-to-day, those day-to-day um, pressures that wear you down. For our listeners who um, maybe aren't based in, in America, particularly not in the American South, obviously your experience is as a lawyer in the American South. Is that particularly different, do you think, to um, other states in America? Is there a particular kind of experience that you have had that you think is very different? That's a great question. I'm happy to clarify. And it's, of course, you can't completely characterize any area of the country because all Americans are different. And, you know, I'd hate to um, say that any particular characterization of people in the South is one way or the other. With that said, in New York, it's well known that if you are a woman in New York and you're a lawyer, that there's really no no one is going to say, mm, you're being a little aggressive here. And, oh, I don't really like the way you said that. You're just expected to be tough as nails and do your job. Um, in the American South, which where I live and where I love living, um, there is a certain courtesy that is expected um, that does contradict with your um, ability to be a tough lawyer. At the same time, there's also some history in the South. Um, so for example, um, women could vote in 1920 um, in the United States, but in Georgia, 
you couldn't serve on the jury until 1953. Um, and the justification was that it would weaken the home, women are too emotional, and you don't want women behaving like men. So there is a history here in Georgia of women um, in the law that, you know, it carries through. And, um, and so I think that that is definitely some of the backdrop to it. What's the situation like? How I mean, are you much more likely to go into a courtroom and find that there's a male judge, there are other male lawyers there? I mean, what's the sort of just kind of loosely, what's the breakdown, do you think? Is it's not 50-50 women, men? It's really changed dramatically. Um, right now we have several very prominent, intelligent women on the federal bench. Um the Georgia Supreme Court, um, our state's highest court um, only has a couple of women on it, which is disappointing. But the federal bench um, does have lots of women. And there's the the female, um, the legal profession now has many, many women in it, probably as many, um, it's probably equally split. It's really when you go into rural Georgia that I have a little bit more um, of a struggle We've really seen improvements, but I, I, I sometimes I check myself to see whether or not there's sexism going on by asking my husband how he experiences the workplace. So, for right. example, I asked my husband, how many times has someone put their hand on your back in the workplace? And he just looked at me oddly. Mm. What do you mean? And I said, oh, thank you. There's my answer. <laughs> Okay. Do you, I mean, in the course of your work, do you come into contact with um, many younger women lawyers? And if so, um, do you give them particular pieces of advice? Or even if you don't, I mean, what would be the kind of, is there a big piece of advice you would give to a young woman starting out in your profession? Um, there are two pieces of advice that I would give. Um, one is be your authentic self and feel confident enough to be assertive on behalf of your client and know that you're going to get judged for that and you might get some pushback, but keep moving forward because it's the right thing to do. The second thing I would say is negotiate your salary. Um, and that's because I still see over and over again, women not negotiating their salaries. Um, I had an unfortunate incident when I was in my early twenties about that. Um, when I, found out that a male counterpart um, was making more money than me, even though I had a higher position than he did. And I confronted my boss and she said, well, he asked for more. And so I'd never made that mistake again. And I am always counseling any woman who I ever come in contact with, negotiate your salary. That's wise words to live by, I think, not just in the profession of law, but all, all around, right? Our shells will be back in just a moment. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Our Shelves. I'm Lucy Scholes and I'm talking to Justine Cowan, who's just given me best piece of advice I could have in my entire life. Next up, Justine, I want to ask you uh, whether you could tell me about a book that's made you think about feminism in a new way. Many years ago, I read The Mist of Avalon when it first came out, and I was a young woman um, in college and just starting out my life. And I don't remember that many details of the book, but what I remember was what I felt. I felt astonishment that this story of King Arthur could be told entirely from the perspective of women. And not just any women, but intriguing women, strong women, women with deep characters that carried forward with me that women could have a role in any historical setting, in society. This was occurring when I was in college in California. At the time, the California Supreme Court had a woman named Rose Byrd on the California Supreme Court, and there was a concerted campaign to get her kicked off of the Supreme Court that was successful. And this was really one of the only women that I saw in a position of power. And it was really important at that time in my formative years to be able to view women as powerful. That's something that really stuck with me. And I always enjoy reading books that provide a different perspective to what might be a, well to- a well-known story. I'm really fascinated by this answer because um, I have heard of The Miss of Avalon. Like, I haven't actually read it myself, um, but you've made me want to go and and look at it in more detail now. But it was published in 1983, which is obviously quite a while ago. Um, Yet it strikes me that it's very similar, um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but to sort of the more recent revisionist mythology that's being written by the likes of Madeline Miller, who wrote Circe recently, Natalie Haynes's Thousand Ships, or Pat Barker's Silence of the Girls, you know, these books that are revising um, the latter two and looking at the Trojan War from a female perspective. Uh, And these have been so popular recently, like, you know, uh, readers like women and men alike have been kind of crying out for these stories but it sounds like uh, the Miss of Avalon was doing it first I would think so um, I actually have Circe on my bookshelf right now and I have just started reading it well I was going to ask whether you're a big fan of these newer versions or not so that answers my question I am trying that and I'm also um, starting the Wild Sargasso Sea which tells the story of Jane Eyre from the perspective of the woman in the attic. Um, And so um, I do like different perspectives, but I think that what it is, is that hunger to be in the shoes of the storyteller and to have something resonate 
um, and find a familiarity. And so with the Me Too movement and all of this, I'm not surprised that all of these books are coming out. Mm. Have you gone back and read The Mists of Avalon since you first read it, or do you just like to have the idea of it in your head? I would like to. Um, however, I'm not quite sure I have the time. It's a, <laughs> a, it's a bit of a long book. I think it's about 900 pages. So now I do recommend, I, I do recall being able to get through those 900 pages pretty quickly, but I'm not quite sure I have the time right now. And our final question is, uh, we always ask our guests to name a woman or a non-binary person whom they admire. Um, So could you tell me, Justine, who your pick is and why you've picked them? Well, I have chosen Madeleine Albright, um, who is the former Secretary of State for the United States. And that's just one of the many prestigious positions that she has held. I actually had the pleasure of meeting her when I was in my early 20s. And as you can see, there's a bit of a theme about how important your early 20s are in finding role models and strength to become the person that you want to be. There was an organization called Women's Information Network that had just started in Washington, D.C. And the, um, the purpose of the organization was to help other women up the ladder of success by introducing them to those women who had already succeeded. And I had been asked to help coordinate a dinner on national security issues. And so what we did is we got together 12 or 13 women who were in their early 20s with various leaders in that field. And Madeline Albright was one of them. And she actually helped put it together. And she, of course, was delightful and gracious. Um, But she had a message about women helping other women that really resonated with me. And the other thing that she brought to the table was the fact that she didn't start her career in national security until she had had children um, and she got her master's degree late. And I, I don't think she started until maybe her 40s. And of course, she became extraordinarily successful. And so it also taught me the lesson that you can restart your life at any point in time. This might be, I mean, this is quite an intimate question, I think. So uh, feel free to not answer it if you don't want to. But I'm just wondering whether for somebody who grew up with um, such a troubled relationship with their mother, for example, do you think you have, um, have you had, Relationship, other relationships that you've had with women, whether it's kind of in the workplace or something like this, where you've been able to kind of look up to a woman and maybe see a way of being forward of being a kind of woman in the world yourself. Have those been more important to you, do you think, as a consequence? Have you looked for that sort of leadership or I don't know how, you know, whatever one might sometimes get from a mother elsewhere? I think that that's a very intuitive question. And I think that you're right. I have gone out into the world and found what was missing in my own home in other people. I can look back on my life and I see older women who I became friends with who were very mothering and loving to me. There's other women who mentored me and helped me become a good lawyer. And so I think that we all naturally do that. Um, And you hear a lot about chosen families. 
Mm. And I think that's something that has been very prevalent in my life in creating chosen families um, among my friends and colleagues. Well, I think that's a really wonderful place to bring the podcast to an end for this episode. It gives us all a lot of, I think, hope as well, that sometimes if you don't find the things that you maybe need from certain people at home, there's always other people out there who can give you what you need, whether it's in terms of advice and, and sort of you know helping you in the workplace or in your private life. So thank you so much, Justine. It's been a real pleasure talking to you today. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening. Our Shelves is brought to you by the team at Virago Press. Special thanks to today's guest, Justine Cowan, and tune in next time for more conversations about books, feminism, and culture. Mm-hmm.